Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the ideas. Enjoy the talk. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening and welcome. I'm Professor Anna-Marie Jagos. I'm the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences here at the University of Sydney. So welcome to the University of Sydney and the Sydney Ideas event in conversation with Susan Faludi in partnership with the Sydney Writers' Festival. I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Their ancestral lands stretch from South Head at the entrance to Sydney Harbour all the way to Petersham, an inner west suburb about four kilometres from here up Parramatta Road. It's upon the Gadigal people's ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. And this evening as we come together to listen and I hope to learn from a conversation between Susan Faludi and University of Sydney student Anna Hush, we pause to take in the enormous scale of 60,000 years of Indigenous knowledge and pay respect to those knowledges embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. This evening we will have the pleasure of hearing Susan Faludi speak with Anna Hush and then we'll have a half hour or thereabouts for questions from the audience. So can I suggest that as you're sitting there enjoying the conversation you may be also percolating intellectually and thinking about what's something you might be interested to hear a little bit more about. Um, I almost don't have much of a job to introduce Susan as I know uh, her bio and profile is well known um, and can attract a large audience even to the back of the the business school. Susan Faludi is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and author. She's the author of the best-selling and prescient 1991 Backlash, The Undeclared War Against American Women, which won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Non-Fiction, a classic feminist text now. Backlash has been taken up by generations of subsequent feminists and I think the strength of its work is seen in its kind of persistent value across the decades. Faludi's commitment to thinking incisively about gender is not limited to female subjects, however, as her publication of Stift, The Betrayal of the American Man in 1999 demonstrates. In 2007, she published the post-9-11 analysis, The Terror Dream, Myth and Misogyny in an Insecure America, a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award for Criticism. And her most recent book, uh, which I'm sure a number of you are familiar with, In the Dark Room, won the 2016 Kirkus Prize for Nonfiction and was named one of the top 10 best books of the year by the New York Times. Um, and Susan's available after this event at the Glee Books store immediately outside the lecture theatre door for signing um, in relation to her books. Tonight, Susan will be speaking with Anna Hush. Um, a name that's perhaps not so well known to us yet, Um, an honours philosophy student here at the University of Sydney working on identity politics and feminism. Anna is active in feminist politics here on campus and also a prolific writer of articles and student publications on a range of topics from sexual violence on campus to corporate feminism. We're going to hand over to them now for a conversation. A conversation, I guess, is is a delicate and even intimate object, um, but this one I think is one we're going to enjoy eavesdropping on. Thanks very much. Thank you, 
January for that wonderful introduction. Um, I would also like to acknowledge that we meet tonight on Gadigal land um, and pay respect to the ongoing survival and resistance of the Gadigal peoples of the Euro Nation. Um, I mean, where to start, Susan? Your work is so wide ranging in politics, covered so many topics, as Anne-Marie said, from gender and feminism to capitalism, neoliberalism, terrorism, and Trump. Um, exactly. Uh, but I thought, <laughs> I thought we could just start at the start about when you first got involved with feminism. You talked a little bit about how some of your family experiences um, stimulated your first engagement with feminism. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, um, <laughs> my father certainly had something to do with my early feminism. Uh, in that uh, when I was growing up, my father was kind of, you know, the ur-patriarch, or at least um, how um, my father imagined the ur-patriarch to be for the American 1960s model. Um, and so my father was very autocratic, controlling, bullying, and uh, my mother wanted to be a journalist. She actually had worked, begun working as a journalist um, uh, before they got married and uh, wanted to continue. My father forbade her and said, you know, no, you need to stay home and be a housewife. Move just to the suburbs. Uh, and, and ultimately, uh, when my mother decided she actually did not want to continue with the marriage, and, announced that she wanted a divorce. My father turned quite violent. Um, there were various temporary restraining orders <coughs> called in. Um, and uh, my father was sort of increasingly violent and culminating in one particularly bloody night when my father broke in with a baseball bat in the night. Um, so needless to say, all of this fueled my early feminism. But, but it wasn't just my father, it was even more seeing, and I remember being so outraged at the time that the, the institutions of um, law enforcement and uh, the courts uh, really failed us. And you know, my um, father was arrested that night, but then released you know, a tiny bail, and uh, ultimately given just a little slap on the wrist. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought I'd have to pay $200. Um, and, you know, the courts uh, said, you know, yes, fine to pay a tiny bit of child support and no alimony. Um, so, all, you know, that, the, the society's role in supporting us. Um, I, um, one father's idea of what it, um, you know, what the masculine prerogative was, uh, had as much of, uh, you know, was as profound an influence on my feminism as my father's individual behavior. Mm -hmm. um, and it's you know, this is the late 70s, and you know, all around me in this suburb, I could see, you know, there were sort of housewives who were <laughs> rethinking sort of this deal and, and um, in, 
consciousness Yeah, it strikes me that it must have been a really difficult and personal process writing that book, um, which the publishers call a memoir on the back, but it's really so much more than that. I guess coming to it with the, the skills and the tools of an investigative journalist, but also delving into such a um, such a personal history about about your own family and your father. Um, and then how did it affect you personally, going to Hungary, picking up all of those personal histories? Well, so for those of you who don't know, so in 2004, um, my, uh, well, so after my parents divorced, my father and I were pretty estranged. We barely spoke to each other for more than a quarter of a century. Uh, and then really out of the blue in 2004, I got an email from my father saying, Dear Susan, I have some interesting news for you. I've decided that um, I've had enough of uh, impersonating a macho, aggressive man, but I've never been inside. Uh, and the news, which is illustrated with a sort of series of attached selfies, was that my father, without telling anyone, had gone to Thailand to have gender reassignment surgery. And my father, Stephen, was next step for me. Um, so after I picked myself up on the floor, um, and I also should point out my father was 76 years old at the time, um, and there was no evidence that I, the so-called investigative reporter, was aware of growing up. Um, so I called my father, and uh, I, to make things a little even more complicated, uh, my father was born in Hungary. Um, and decided in 1990 to move back, um, move back to the country that she had grown up in. Um, so this was a transatlantic call, and my father <coughs> at that point invited me to apply my repertorial skills to her love and said, write my story. So that was the beginning of our reconnection. Um, how this affected me in every way imaginable. I mean, I had to throw out the, um, you know, the template I had on, on my father and on our relationship and on everything I um, thought I knew about her. Um, uh, and you know, sort of reassess everything from the ground up. Mm -hmm. uh, my father also had um, gave me quite uh, a run for my money on, on the feminism question. <laughs> um, uh, when I first arrived in Budapest to see her, uh, she um, uh, announced that um, she put it, you see, you only talk about the disadvantages of being a woman, but I only see advantages. <laughs> <laughs> It's like a hell of a racket being a woman. You, you can just act helpless and um, men do things for you. And, um, and, right, and right at the beginning, and sort of right after the uh, surgery, my father um, was pretty invested in this kind of 1950s ideal of femininity. Um, and so that first. Uh, the first um, visit 
the, the my father you know, gave me the kind of grand tour of you know Doris Day wardrobe and a collection of makeup and you know we discussing hair products and stilettos <laughs> and um, and that you know that we had many arguments over you know what. Um, our contrasting views of <laughs> what, um, what a woman's experience mm. really is. And that, you know, later I spoke, I mean, that changed over time. Um, ultimately, my father, you know, he put aside a lot of this kind of caricature persona as she became more comfortable with herself. Mm -hmm. and, um, so, in the long run, um, my the experience really affirmed my fundamental beliefs um, that gender is on a spectrum, or you know, and it's infinitely varied, and that we're all more uh, complicated and more interesting than um, you know the sex roles that society imposes on us. Mm, absolutely. And the book comes out, I think, at a really opportune time where the tide is really turning on trans issues. You know, everyone's talking so much more about what gender identity means, realizing that, as you said, it's much more kind of messy and complex and fluid than a simple binary or than biology. Mm. Um, and it's remarkable how fast that's changed. Yeah. I mean, when, I, when you know, I started on this journey in 2004, mm. that, I mean, a certain way. I mean, nobody, nobody, nobody in the mainstream really, um, you know, had a clue. And, um, you know, and, I, you know, I couldn't, you know, predict in 2004 that we'd be, thankfully, along the way, hardly enlightened entirely, but um, that there's been a dramatic um, um, change in. Thank you. 
complicate the trans narrative and um, you know that I but in, in no way would I you know ever hold on my father really complicated story um, as you know somehow representative and that would be absurd but um, I you know in, in trying in trying to understand my father I drew trans history, trans literature, um, but to understand my father not to, you know, not ever want to extrapolate from my father to generalize about trans experience. Um, and, but, you know, I think it's important to reach a point where um, we can tell these stories um, without having to worry about, oh no, you know, you can't talk about someone's complexity because then they won't be a poster child for the movement. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we should reach a point where we don't have to be exemplary yeah. um, to, to demand your rights. Um, yeah. so I was having this conversation with Jen Borland, the trans woman writer, uh, writes lots of New York her work, um, a wonderful memoirist, and, and she said to me, you know, the way to think about it is, when you've met one trans person, you've met one trans person. That's why we need just more and more stories, so that we don't just have a single, you know, example of what being trans looks like. Like Caitlin Jenner, for example, which is obviously not, you know, ever going to represent the spectrum of experiences. Um, could you tell us a bit about your choice of language that you use to describe your father? For example, calling her your father, your father rather than your mother? Yeah, that was my father's request. My, yeah. my father said to me more than once, I'm still your father. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I just went with my father's cues on this. Yeah. And um, my father wanted to be she, my father wanted to be my father. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I already have a mother, so I mean, I could have gone with my parents, but that's what my father wanted. And you know, that is still our relationship, yeah. or was, I should say. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, it's funny because in in most of the time we were in Hungary, and Hungarian has no gendered pronouns, yeah. which is interesting because otherwise Hungary is a very gendered traditional culture. Mm. And tell us about the title of the book. Why did you choose to call it In the Dark Room? Well, um, it's a, it's, it's kind of a literary title <laughs> of my level in that uh, my father uh, was a photographer, a professional photographer, but a mainly, almost entirely, um, uh, her career constituted working in a dark room. My father um, talent was altering images. That's a wonderful memory <laughs> metaphor for the story. Uh, and uh, so, my, and my father's special um, abilities was um, uh, doing the very highly complicated technical work on photographs. Um, uh, she worked in New York for various ad agencies. And ultimately, her biggest client was Condé Nast, um, uh, which relied on her to do like perfect copy 
comedy negative, uh, color conversions, other techniques that I love saying, like dodging and <laughs> masking. Um, and she uh, did these, did this work for some of the most prominent um, fashion and commercial photographers of the period. This is like 60s through the 80s. So Richard Avedon, Francesca Cabrillo, Bert Stern, Irvin Brown. Um, and my father, you know, my father was very proud of the idea that she could uh, uh, make aspects of a photograph go away or make things that were dark lighter or vice versa. And um, she'd like to say to me, you know, the key is control. You only expose what you want exposed, mm -hmm. uh, which resonated. <laughs> came back to me many times as we were working on my father's story, in which he ultimately kind of stepped out of like, the dark room. So I think I mean, on another level, by inviting me in, my father was inviting me to you know, shine some light into what had been a very dark room in which my father had been hidden from me and from everyone and from herself for so many years. Mm -hmm. Can you go back to the picture? <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> it's a good thing uh, I didn't decide to write this fiction. <laughs> 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 Overdoing the <laughs> so earlier in your career, you wrote about masculinity in Itch, which was now published almost 20 years ago. Um, has your perspective on masculinity changed all throughout this process of exploring trans issues and your, your father's transition? So, you know, it's funny. I, I wish I could say, you know, the scales dropped from my eyes <laughs> and then I realized it was all wrong about femininity or feminism or masculinity. But yeah, again, my father, um, you know, the big uh, sort of revelation, but um, the you know, sort of uh, conviction I came to oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, in uh, working on SIF, the book on masculinity, was one of burden uh, the whole idea of masculinity stakes for men. Um, and some of my loyal readers of that much were irritated that I turned my attention to men. People <laughs> when I was traveling around after it came out, people would say, why didn't you just write backlash to who cares about that? <laughs> um, but, you know, I think in a funny way, and at some varied level, I must have been aware of my father's mm -hmm. um, own uh, sense of being just stifled by this, this um, you know, kind of hyper-masculine mold he felt he had to wear. Um, and I think somewhere buried in, I mean, unbeknownst to me, I was trying to figure out my father. I was writing about, um, uh, writing about men and that was sort of in the 90s, so mm. only, you know, like six, seven years before my father transitioned. Yeah. And it seems that this idea of the kind of crisis of masculinity where, you know, men are feeling disempowered or disenfranchised by various sort of social and economic changes, but taking it out, you know, not on structures, but on groups like women or immigrants is yeah. much more relevant now than ever. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I did get a number of letters from people 
fear in America of the unspeakable. Um, uh, in many ways, the culmination of a historic gender drama that's been going on for at least two decades. Uh, and I remember when I was working on it, how many of the, the, the angry white men uh, I interviewed were at some point in the conversation, no matter what we were talking about, we'd suddenly you know, drop into this um, rant against Hillary Clinton and how she was leading theft and the Antichrist. And, um, and it, it was so, the, the, the beginning of the right wing in, in the US pushing, you know, manipulating um, uh, so many, in particular, demographic of men to lay their troubles at the doorstep of minorities, of women, of immigrants. Um, you know, and then you know, fast forward to last year, where we really were seeing that in extremists, so there's some um, this hyper misogynist display uh, Trump, you know, channeling angry white males uh, fury, and specifically as the symbol of, of um, uh, feminism for many of these men. Mm. Well, I picked up the copy of Backlash recently. I think it was the 2006 edition. Um, I was quite surprised to read the introduction that you didn't think that there was a backlash anymore, um, and that there was sort of things worse than a backlash um, now. And I took that to mean that. Um, you know, I sort of saw this line that feminism isn't really relevant anymore, that we've achieved all the goals, you know, that women can be CEOs too. So people don't really see feminism as, as relevant anymore, so it's kind of just dismissed rather than, um, rather than simulating a kind of backlash. But, you know, as you said, it's, it's gotten even worse, um, and it's led to the rise of these kind of far right parties. Mm. How do you think feminism today can respond to, to the backlash of the best just to sort of, sort of decide and keep going with, with what we're doing? Uh, well, no, we need to respond. <laughs> you know, I don't think the backlash ever went away. There was a period where, uh, I mean, in the 80s when I was working on, on backlash on the book, um, in, in some way it was, easy, it was easier to confront because it was right there mm -hmm. out in the open. Um, you know, I mean, I would call up some movie producer Intent on putting women back who have embraced 
the rhetoric and are using that as part of their strategy. Um, and then you've got the, you know, in the last year, um, you know, the misogynist trolls um, just, you know, on a rampage and, uh, and not bothering with saying what's the risk at all. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I think that, you know, it is, it is long past time for, uh, for a feminist to say, no, this is, this is what feminism means. And, uh, yeah. And I think. Since Trump, I mean, the one plus side of Trump's election is that it's kind of re-politicized in the U.S. Um, uh, you know, starting with the Women's March, and there, there's right now just you know thousands and thousands of, of uh, groups, grassroots feminist um, groups that have sprung up and that are. You know, questioning day, every day, delusioning their uh, representatives, um, protesting um, town hall meetings. Um, so, I, you know, in, in that way, it's an exciting moment if we can just keep the energy up and, and, and understand that there isn't going to be like one knockout strike. It's not like, okay, we had a women's march and we can go home. It's going to be a huge fight. Absolutely. And for the same issues that we're fighting for, that you're 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 fighting for, um, yeah, and I think, I mean, it's, it's cool, um, talking about the internet in, in the role of, of the backlash, but also in spreading feminism, um, it's kind of a double-edged sword, because I think when the backlash is online, the neutral can kind of be anonymized and even more vicious and vehement. Um, that's, you know, obviously a really awful thing. Um, but the internet also, I think, plays a role in the sort of corporatization and, and consumerist feminism that we see today. How do you think we can get back to, I know you talked a little bit about it, but how do we get back to these concrete um, social, political, economic issues rather than this kind of consumerist feminism for the brand type? Yeah. yeah. I think we were actually at the point, I mean, there was a, a period in the last, I don't know, decade really, mm -hmm. of um, thinking about, sometimes we got into the weeds of, well, is Beyonce and Taylor Swift or is Katy Perry, you know, who is the type, you know, and should our pop stars um, be you know, talking about feminism? And is, you know, is the, the dumb soap ad, who's that feminist or not? I mean, there was a lot of kind of a silly season. Um, that, you know, burned away overnight on November 8th in the US. Uh, and I mean, I'm just not even hearing that kind of talk anymore. Um, also, before the election, um, we went through the kind of lean in feminism. There was a lot of focus on sort of empowering these, you know, this, this is one person, <laughs> and uh, a lot of focus on you know, kind of getting ahead feminism. And, um, can, you know, and 
just getting women into the boardroom. Um, but then with that came up all the success with, with you know, looking at um, you know, how how you can have it all and, um, and you know, and was between um, Cheryl Sandberg, Selena, and Anne Marie Slaughter, you know, talking about the difficulties of having a high-level job in the State Department, um, and very little conversation about uh, working-class women um, are you know, just women who are just struggling, which at the same time, uh, the women's poverty rate uh, was at record levels. Um, uh, Occupation um, sex segregation was on the rise. Um, uh, big, uh, you know, yawning um, and increasing gap between uh, working class women, uh, uh, success rate economically, and uh, women who are college educated. And none of this was getting discussed. Um, so, you know, I think that's a key place of focus. It's just on the bread and butter issues that, that all women are facing. Yeah, definitely agree. And what do you think is the role of, um, of journalism, in, in particular feminist journalism, in sort of setting that agenda and, and steering the conversation in the right direction? Well, I mean, one, one of the plus sides of the internet is that it, it you know, created a bonanza of feminist journalism mm. uh, and, you know, lowered the, you know, anybody can set up a website and, and you know, it's just less of a bar. Um, the downside is anybody can set up a website, right? <laughs> and, um, you know, young feminists who, um, on the blogosphere, have been viciously attacked. Um, and we don't, it's very different than having the protection of a, when you're working for mm -hmm. an establishment newspaper or broadcasting organization. So, you know, that kind of wild west frontier aspect of the internet has been a mixed bag for women. Mm -hmm. um, but on the other hand, women can really, you know, some uh, um, online communities by that quickly can organize quickly and uh, can get their trolls along for them. Absolutely. And it seems like the internet will be such an important place of resistance in the Trump era when there's increasing scrutiny and manipulation mm -hmm. of media outlets. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also being a journalist for so many women is um, is a way of finding your voice, of gaining power and authority. It certainly works for me. When I look back on you know, uh, feminists historically, an outrageous number of them were journalists or would be by coincidence. Mm, absolutely. We've got out of time for our conversation. We might move on to the um, questions from the Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, 
head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.